You're about to listen to an all-new issue of Geek in the City Radio, which comes to you free every single week over on geekinthecity.com. If you enjoy helping us keep this show free, and I know you do, pop on over to patreon.com forward slash geekinthecity, where we have all kinds of levels that get you some fantastic awards and benefits. But if you can't help us out there, just please share this show over on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. And as always, our opening and closing theme brought to you by nerd rock group Megathruster. And now, let's get on with an all-new issue of Geek in the City Radio. One, two, three, four! It's been a long, long week. Why don't you spend some time with geeks? So many issues a day into which we must delve. Talk about the stuff that makes you scream and shout. Hit the red alert, we're going more factor 12. Thanks for pressing play. Now we're gonna save the day. Alright! Why, hello, and welcome to issue 563 of Geek of the City Radio. I'm one of your hosts, Aaron Duran. I'm one of your other hosts, Spinarita. And I'm your other host, Cable Hashitani. What's up, friends? Oh, it's Tuesday. My belly is super full. Oh, why is it full? Much. I just I ate mean, it too much. What'd you have? I made, um, so corn, the, the fake meat company, makes these like spicy breaded patties. Oh, yeah, they do. So I, I had spice, so I had spicy chicken. Spicy crispy chicken burgers. Mm. With- Haven't you had enough of that? We had that yesterday. <laughs> Apparently not. Um, and then like a side of sa- potato salad and chips, just like something like quick and easy because it's Tuesday. Um, and it was way more filling than I thought it would be. Yeah, that corn's very dense. I love that stuff. Mm-hmm. I just had a boring cheese sandwich. Just we cheese. Had- just cheese. Just- <laughs> we-, we had leftover curry. Ooh. I started making my own curry uh, a few, like a month or two ago. It's way easier than I ever imagined it would be. Mm-hmm. Although it might just be some like simplified American method. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think I read somewhere that it curry is like a generic term for just a lot of like mixed and spices and how you use them. Mm-hmm. So. I don't know. You use curry paste, coconut milk, mm. veggies, donuts, and rice. That's all you Sometimes need. I use paste uh, for like if I'm making like I have a recipe for green curry, and that one I calls for a paste. But other ones that I do more often are just like like diced tomatoes, and then like turmeric and curry powder, or like masala, just like you know various powders. Right. And mm. coconut milk. <laughs> but which I buy by the case now. Yep, that's yeah. the secret, non-secret uh, ingredient <laughs> in, in all curry. It's just coconut milk. You know, for like Are, the last... Go ahead, sorry. sorry I, just, I really, really thought that Cable was reaching off camera to grab and like, I don't know, hold up a can of coconut milk. As like proof, like, look it. <laughs> 
I'd have to reach all the way into the kitchen. And you were not the elongated man. Oh, speaking of no. which. <laughs> yeah, they're, uh, uh, go ahead. I saw a headline that he, they're going to recast him, but then they're just going to like pretty quickly do away with the character. Yeah. After that. They said That's they're not killing. A, they said they're not killing a mop. They may bring him back, but they're just going to kind of mm. show up a little bad. bit. Yeah. Too bad, Cable, that uh, the character's going to go away. Yes, because they had just they spent so much time this last season creating the character of Sue. Um, I forget what her Did maiden me. name was. Oh, sorry. Right. Can't remember. Um, she's. She's the woman that becomes Elongated Man's wife. And Sue and Ralph Dibney were the go-to couple in the DC universe for a long period of time. Like, they didn't have... Like, Sue didn't have superpowers. She just helped Ralph run the detective agency. And Ralph stopped going by... uh, Or stopped having a separate identity. He was just Ralph Dibney, the Elongated Man. And went public with it, right? Um, and they I, just like they spent all of season six. Was this season six? Seven, uh, I think. No, it's season seven's coming up. They just coming did up. trailers oh. for season. No, seven. you're right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, introducing her character, Sue Sue Dearbont, That was her name, mm-hmm. and the the actress that they had playing Sue and uh, Hartley Sawyer had really really great on-screen chemistry together and they worked really well. Um, it, so it was going to be one of those things. It's like, so you're going to spin them off into like, you may not spin them off into their own show, but you have another couple that you can pop in on other CW shows or, you know, they do their, their season on legends of tomorrow. <clears throat> like everybody else does. Right. <laughs> <laughs> they still might. You never know. Although is this the last season of legends coming up? I have no idea. I don't know. I always think that whatever season they just finished is the last one. Yeah, with uh, the previous season and their big Hello World finale, I thought that was going to be it. Yeah, except it's not. Because they they left it on a cliffhanger and it's on the <laughs> schedule for 2021. Right. I did it, always we, like it when like Ralph and Sue in the comics were written kind of like Nick and Nora. That's because what that's what they that's are. That's what they were. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I can see that. But then, I, you know, we don't. I hate what they fucking did to him in the comics. We don't speak of this. The like, only redeeming factor, but then they never went and revisited it, was at the end of fifty two, when they were both ghosts, and they were both and and like his even as a ghost, his nose went like twinkled, mm-hmm. and she was like, "Ooh, do you sense a mystery?" And he's like, "Of course, darling." And I was like, "Oh, are we gonna get ghost investigators?" I was like, I'll read that comic. This might be mm-hmm. the only good thing to come out of that fucking identity crisis. <laughs> oh, they dropped it. It's like, oh, I man. still, still hate. Like, hate. to me, that was that was the beginning of the end of what they were doing with all of their characters. Yeah, that is where DC the comics got really fucking dark for me, and I was mm-hmm. like, and they never felt the same. Every once in a while, you'd get elements that were nice, but identity crisis was was a bad moment for DC. And I think we're still, well, a lot of people that called the shots are still fucking there. Like I just, God, I read the, cause I saw it making the rounds today. I just found a digital copy or I bought a digital copy of the three jokers, the first issue. 
Mm-hmm. I just didn't like it at all. I'm shocked. It's just unnecessarily mean. Um, and it got me thinking, I don't think Jeff Johns has written anything that was like fun since his early Green Lantern core stuff. Like everything's just gotten dark and mean and violent and like ragey. Uh, again that gets back into that's what creators and these companies think that their public wants and that's what the public says they want but i don't think they mean that at all i don't think they know what they want yeah it's just weird to go back and revisit like his run on jsa and be like this can't be the same guy i mean i know everyone evolves but jeez yeah well, just, everyone goes through a dark period, too, and some people don't come out of it. Yeah, I guess that's so, it. There's always the hope that maybe this will be a phase for him. Yeah, well, I don't know how much longer he's going to be at DC, considering what we talked about before. Yeah, womp, womp. Yeah. B, I don't know if you heard that. The So uh, Warner Entertainment has officially hired like outside investigators to investigate what happened on the Justice League set with like Joss Whedon and Jeff Johns and Joe Berg? No. Yeah. I I don't even know what the rumors are. Uh, like I mean, that, I, that initiated this investigation. Uh, the, I mean, the biggest rumor is that, and apparently this is true on many Whedon sets, is that he does not cultivate a a healthy and safe filming environment. Joss Whedon. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Um, so there was a lot of that involved and apparently there was some other like, you know, shady stuff that I have no idea what it's about, but it would be nice to see some of these companies start to clean house a little bit. I, I think we should use the term allegation rather than rumor. Yeah, that like, works. Now that there's an investi- there's an investigative team involved, like they have means that the rumors have turned into, hey, I'm coming forward with this. And they're like, oh, we're going to hire people to investigate this. That's an allegation. Yeah, no, that's true. That makes No, for sure. That's a much better word. I just, like, I had zero context off of, like, what exactly the situation was. Apparently the the actor that played um, Cyborg, you said? Yeah, yeah. What was his last? Fisher something? Or what was his name? I want to say Ray Fisher, but I don't think that's right. I think that's what you said. Yeah, Ray Fisher. That is right, yeah. Um, he's the one that brought these allegations forward at the beginning of July, did you say? Or June? Uh, June? I think it was either June or July 1st when he he flat out brought it up on Twitter about it. Good. So good. Yeah. Um, yeah, Jeff Johns has done some, like, we get that people have relationships because people are human, but the fact that he was keeping secret his uh, relationship with um, the woman that was running DC Entertainment. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. Oh, that, I missed that one completely somehow. Ray oh, Fisher was? Yeah. No, no, Jeff Johns. Jeff, Jeff Johns. Johns. I, I feel like I'm supposed to know who that is, but... Jeff you'll, Johns was one of the creative heads at DC Comics. Yeah, and you'll see his name a lot on CW shows. I think he's a producer on most of the superhero ones. Yep, mm. um, including Star Girl. Yeah, Star Girl and The Flash. Um, 
yeah, all that stuff. Um, yeah, I didn't know that part. Wow. Oh yeah, the um, the woman who came in and was put in charge of DC Comics, like this was like five years ago, mm-hmm. five to ten years ago. Like um, they've been having they've been romantically involved for years, and it just came to light like two years ago, and everyone went, oh. Well, that explains why he's in the room doing all of this stuff. That's not okay. None of that's okay. Right. Yeah, so... I think that's why he had to step away from comics entirely or do something. Like, he had to step away from something that he was doing actively. It's like, oh, sorry, uh, I'll just go over here and not do that. Yeah. I think the woman running DC now also used to be the head of, like, Scholastic. Hmm. Which actually seems like a very... I mean, I feel bad. Like, a third of that company, people are, are going to be out of work soon. And that sucks. But that upper management yeah. needed a serious house cleaning. Um, and I mean, that's probably true in most organizations. Especially recently, yeah. But if the woman in charge is who I think it is, yeah, she's ran Scholastic for years. And if you are in the business of you know, whatever, quote, selling funny books to kids. How about you put the woman in charge who's been running like the biggest fucking kids imprint ever? There was a quote that, that went out. Sense. Yeah, there was a quote that went out, I guess, a few days ago on Twitter. It's a, um, I, don't, I don't know all the details, but this, um, like this woman was at like a, like a comic sellers event or a convention or something. And she went up to, I don't know, I think she went up to like a, Bob Harris mm-hmm. and had mentioned like, well, have you, you know, have you thought about getting some of your graphic novels into Scholastic? And he said, what's that? Eh. She's like, Scholastic, it's, it's the biggest book fair that is in every single school and library in Must North America. And he said, I never heard of it. And that's when she was like, oh, they have no idea what they're doing at these companies. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, and if you look at kind of the books that they've been announcing since the big shift, I mean, they're still going to do their regular stuff, but there's a huge focus on middle reader and YA original books now. Like, even with established characters, they are really understanding, like, hey, we need to sell to 10 year olds. <laughs> because our core audience is literally dying off. Uh, I think there's, there's a different woman. Mm. Okay. The, I, the Diane Nelson is the person I was talking about. Okay, yeah, no, this is a because I think she's gone. Yes, yeah, because of her relationship with Jeff Johns. Okay, yeah. <laughs> Comics, man, they're a they're a hell of a thing. Yep. <laughs> well, and now there's these days there's even more of a like interwovenness between. Uh, people in the comics industry and uh, people in Hollywood. Sort of. Like, I... Like, I didn't watch DC Fandome, um, but apparently there were all kinds of people who work in comics that put together hours and hours of content and panels and interviews and none of that saw any airtime because they suddenly went, oh, we're going to split it in two. So all the comic stuff is in September. Oh, is that what they did? 
Yes. The August one that, that was heavily hyped and mm-hmm. everyone was tuning in for was all TV and movie and video game. And none of the actual comics that any of yeah, these characters come I mean, from. It's what happens when you're owned by AT&T. Mm-hmm. You know, so... Although maybe in a way, maybe it's better that all the comic stuff get their own separate day so they don't get lost in all the, you know, all the announcements and shit. I agree with that. I I think it gives them an opportunity to actually talk about comics. (laughs) It's, it's like all those fucking years ago when, um, I fucking launched my Dark Anna Kickstarter, like the day the Avengers trailer came out and I was like, (laughs) oh, come on, man. But uh, I have to give credit. Um, this person I now I now know her, uh, Brittany. She was she was basically running Marvel's social media page that day, and apparently took pity on me. So for like ten minutes, like Marvel had retweeted, and they're like, "And don't forget the comics that are still getting made after you watch this trailer." And I was like, "Oh, thank you. That was so sweet of you." Nice. <laughs> yeah, but I remember seeing it was like, "Well, there goes okay." Then the Avengers Smart. just got dropped. No, it was really nice of her. Like, I wrote her direct, and like, when I found out who she was, I was like, thanks for throwing me a bone on that one. <laughs> that was pretty cool. Uh, so later on, in about 10 minutes, we're going to have um, David Papoz on again. Yeah. Um, he's going to talk to us about a new project that he's got in the works, correct? Yeah, it's on Kickstarter right now. It's called The Oz, Issue 1. Um, he's not going to need the Geeky Nasini radio bump, but it'll still be good to talk to him. His initial goal was 6,000 and he's just under 30,000 right now. Oh, wow. So he's doing just fine, but it'll still be fun to talk to him. It is so crazy to see, um, just the variety of ways that a Kickstarter can, can roll out. I feel like it's actually more common than not for people to just blast their, their initial goal super super quick like with an under a week yeah there's this there's actually this weird algorithm that people have figured out and even kickstarter talks about it that even if you think your project's going to take say whatever like fifteen thousand to happen there a lot of them will be like you know what but but pitch it at like nine um and then kind of work in your stretch but there's something about when people see a really high number and you're a relatively unknown, people balk at it. No matter how many successful campaigns you've run. But on the flip side, if you go too low, they think, well, then you probably actually don't need this money, or maybe that's not that good. Mm. There's also the same thing about how long to run a campaign. Like the sweet spot's usually 30 days. Because you can go, I think you can do as little as two weeks and as much as 60 days. And again, they're like 30 days is kind of like that sweet spot. Um, so it'll be kind of neat to talk with him about. I'll put the little thing in the chat for you guys too to check it out. So yeah, he's going to pop on here in just a few minutes. But uh, yeah, other than that, what else you guys been working on? Cable's probably just unpacking everything. Getting closer to being done. Yay! That's awesome. It's always a good feeling. And then I can actually spend more time building Lego. 
I know I have a I'm, lot more, a lot more to build. I am. I have not started the uh, the haunted house that I bought. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is my. I have finished the script prize. That's a good prize. Yeah, yeah. That's the okay. You finished the script. You can now go build this giant Lego set. Still don't know where I'm going to put it, but I'm going to build it. That's the thing for me is I'm like, Ugh, I don't, I don't have any room for stuff that should be displayed. I'm <laughs> yeah, I'm, capped. I'm All about I've got to left ins- is like the rest of this wall here. <laughs> yeah, and you've got that's... cool shit hanging now. Yeah, well, that hoop can come down at any point. Really, it's just a gap filler. But this is the only wall in the house that is not like full or like filled, you know, strategically. Right. So, well, I'm putting uh, up a new bookshelf in my office that will have room. So, I was thinking about doing floating bookshelves. Those are cool. Just to get kinda, stuff off my desk, really. I kind of love those things. I think they look really great. Little mini stacks floating against your wall. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I like it even more when they actually build them to look like they're also more books. Books on books. Books on books. Mm-hmm. Books. Books on books on books. Books on books, um, books on books and books and books and books. I've been having a really quiet week, uh, just doing like lots of herbal stuff. So I like was able to like prune back some of my yard herbs growing yeah. out back, doing stuff with that. I made roughly thirty-two ounces of lavender infused oil. That was fun. Mm, what are you gonna do with that? Um, I don't know yet. Some of them I'm just gonna give out as gifts. Um, maybe, I don't know. Uh, and I got those sage bundles I made. Maybe uh, after all the homebrew I've given you. <laughs> yeah, I've got a ton and I don't necessarily have plans for it. It's just, I actually sh- probably shouldn't have made quite so much because I used up all of the dried lavender I had for that. Yeah. But you can do a lot of different things with the oil, so. It's not like it won't grow back, you know, like a beast next year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Again, I got those. For, I got, I got all that lavender from the two bushes, like right outside my house, basically. Right. Nice. Or outside the next door neighbor's house. I made a meat pie. <laughs> yeah, that that thing looked good. <laughs> I'm super happy with it. It was really fun too. I'm gonna make more. I think it might be my new little kitchen obsession. Oh, I made a I made a green uh, a salsa verde with all my tomatillos. My my. My miracle mm. tomatillos. Where's mine then? I want some in my face. I just made it today. Oh, I did okay. all of these things today. Bring it over tomorrow. Okay. No, don't. I'll be writing all day long. <laughs> It'll be no fun. Um, I have also been like getting a lot of outdoor Halloween lights and decorations. Um, since there will be no like Halloween parties really this year and you're not going to see any trick-or-treaters. Yeah, um, I am not. basically I'm basically turning my little side yard into the haunted mansion. Yay! I'm gonna have little <laughs> tombstones and you know those videos you can buy that project like ghostly apparitions appear from your walls. Like I bought some of those oh, to project outside. <laughs> no, but these are they look they're not no I already have that. No, they if you project them against like you can project it like against a window and it makes it look like something's in the actual window from the outside and so I'm going to I'm going to put up this like little like sheet you can put up and I'm going to put it up like right in front of our outdoor table and then you project against it and it looks like there are ghosts eating at the table and then they get up and come at you. 
<laughs> I know. I'm kind of excited Spoopy. about it. Yeah, it sounds fun. Yeah, it's going to be fun. And I'll just be living in my side yard drinking pumpkin beers. And I will be right there. Okay. And I'm, I'm not even going to wait. I'm not even going to wait for it to be ready. That's right. You're just going to be sitting there the entire time. You can help me set it up. <laughs> nope, she's just going to be sitting. She's like, nah, nah. I'd rather you do all the work. Look, I just came for the beer. <laughs> That's what her tombstone's going to say. I just came for the beer. <laughs> <laughs> it's all gone, so I'm done. That'll be your tube. Here lies Here the Rita. She drank all the beer. The quote will be, out of beer. <laughs> nice. Nice. Oh, we've got an interesting conversation happening in the chat about. I know we um, got to remember that there are like kids. Uh, kids are more comfortable with the digital formats versus. Uh, it must be an old people problem that to for the love of going to the comic shop and you know rifling through all of the actual physical comics and and merch. Yeah, but kids do go to bookstores and they like it. Yeah, I don't know. I I enjoy both. Um, mm-hmm. I find that I get a lot of use out of my, like, my Kindle tablet, for example, because yeah. uh, I don't lose my page if I fall asleep reading. And that's usually when I do my, my most <laughs> of my reading is, like, in bed before being asleep. Right. Uh, it's also great on trips. But, uh, yeah, which uh, makes sense, yeah. I think it's wholly possible to get kids into, interested in, into going to comic stores. Um. I think that what I was responding to was a comment about uh, uh, price of comics. Oh, David is here. Hey. Hi. Oh, David. Hey, guys. Thanks so much hey. for having me. Yeah. Uh, you just, shocking no one, you, you tune in right as we were talking about how comics are too expensive for younger kids to buy. <laughs> oh, perfect. Yeah. Well, uh, no, that is why we all get into industries for the money and respect and professional. Yes. yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The yeah. status, the power, the glory. Yeah. Yes. Hey, David just logged in, which lets me know that this is a great time to take a quick commercial break and thank our sponsors. First up is Bridge City Comics. We're going to be talking about a lot of comics in the next hour or so. So uh, if anything that he's talked about uh, piques your interest, then you should go to Bridge City Comics. You can find them at 3725 North Mississippi Avenue in Portland, Oregon. Um, you know, also like some of the stuff we talked about on the, the DC fandom when we opened the show, or if you heard me lamenting my issues with the Three Jokers and talking about how much I enjoyed the old JSA, any of that stuff. If any of that piques your curiosity, go to Bridge City Comics. Uh, if none of it does, but there are books you're still curious about, you can still go to Bridge City Comics, 3725 North Mississippi Avenue in Portland, Oregon. Uh, as always, you must wear your mask when you're in there. If you're not comfortable, I do believe they are still doing mail order and I think even curbside pickup. Find out all about that at BridgeCityComics.com. But either way, while you're doing that, thank them for being a sponsor of Geek in the City Radio. Just like our next sponsor, Guardian Games. They have been our longest sponsor. They've been with us for well over a decade now, and that's kind of terrifying and awesome at the same time. Uh, Guardian Games has been open for a while now. They have limited amount of uh, people coming in, though. I think it's limited to like 20 people. So wear your masks, stay clean, uh, pick up your stuff, and move on out so other people can, can check it out. 
Uh, but they have all kinds of great new games that are still coming in there. Um, there's a list out there of like the top 100 board games of all time. And if they're still in print, Guardian Games is, is going to have them. Uh, they just talked about one called Patchwork. Uh, hailed as one of the greatest 100 games of all time. Uh, the Guardian Games just got it back in stock. So find out just why a game like that is uh, considered one of the best of all time in the history of board games. So, yeah, they have any kind of gaming you might want there. They also have, you know, some, like, puzzles and stuff if you just kind of need some some solo quiet time to reflect and relax and try to build all the edge pieces first. So find them at 345 Southeast Taylor Street in Portland, Oregon. Uh, also, before we get back to it, as always, a big old thanks to RevNats, uh, RevNats Hard Cider, for helping us out with equipment during these quarantine times so the show sounds good. Uh, and also a special shout out to Nat. He was working with some local schools. So along with their cider delivery, they were picking up school supplies. So you can always find out more over at RevNatsCider.com. And with that, let's get back to the show. No, we were just talking about how we were just mentioning how like, Kids are actually reading a lot of comics, but a lot of it is either through like Scholastic or through digital because mm-hmm. yeah. uh, someone who's like basically under 20 grew up with an iPad. So why do they need to go to a store? Sure. And Cable was like, well, you can get them into stores. You just got to make a comic store more welcoming and, you know. And uh, you have you have to like getting them started in the format digitally is how you get them interested in comics in the first place. And then as they build that interest and that curiosity about the form that's where you take them to the store and show them even more and more and more what i was thinking is that like children are very tactile Mm -hmm. so it actually to me and i know that like because they're you know their brains are forming and they're very adaptable they are much better at picking up new technologies versus fully formed adults but i think that they're just as capable of enjoying the physical parts of, uh, of of collecting and rifling through and, and mm-hmm. physically reading oh, paper they totally, comics. They totally do. One of the biggest bummers about there probably being no trick-or-treating this year is for like the last three years like Diamond has had those hella, like kind of like the same on New Comic Day you can buy those bundles for like super cheap prices. Mm-hmm. I would buy like the Halloween stuff from like you know Archie or like DC would do a Halloween one or somebody's coming to do like small Halloween books. And we'd have kids come over and I like on the table, they got a choice. Like you can have candy or you can have a comic. Like nine times out of 10, they wanted the comic. Like they're all <laughs> oh, like, what's comic? So every time I hear like, well, kids just don't read comics. I'm like, that's 100% false. Yeah. You're just not making not the ones that they want. Anyway, David, thanks for popping back. Yeah, of course. No, it's my pleasure. I'm, I'm, I'm glad to be here. Thank you guys so much for having me. I'm, I'm yeah. glad that I got to to uh, uh, hop in at the tail end of that conversation. Yeah, you <laughs> caught us like a mid-rant. Um, yeah. This is like what, your 20th podcast this week? Something like that. It's pretty crazy. <laughs> I, I, uh, I, I, I literally just crash landed in from another podcast. Yeah, uh, well, it's clearly paying off because we used to joke that the show often gave kickstarts the bump they need to go over, but you're like, just I'll under take, thirty thousand. So. I'll take the bump. Give me, give me, give me, give me the uh, geek in the city bump. Okay, we'll give you, we'll give you the bump so you can get the music release. That song. That I was going to ask him for give us the David Peepo's bump. Yeah, yeah. Oh, thank I you. I, I, I'll, I'll take it. Uh, you know, we'll, 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 we'll bump each other's stuff. Um, 
Sorry. As soon as Easy I there. You not. sleep on my totally couch fine. like once a year. It's going to get weird now. It's going to get real weird if we're talking <laughs> each other's stuff. Um, it's going to get weird now. Some, stuff I remember, over, I remember a stuff over a fried egg sandwich. Can I? Yes. I, 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 can I tell the story, Aaron? Can I tell it? Uh, Dick Grayson? Oh, shit. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, because you're, you're leaving Newsarama, so we can... I'm done. I, I wrapped up two weeks ago, so I, so can, I can tell the story. It's the end of an era. I was there for 12 years. And oh, wow. Aaron, well, which Dick Grayson story? I have many. Well, Dick... So, so you wrote a story... You wrote a review about um, an issue of, of, of Grayson or Nightwing or something like that. I think it and was the... Said, it was the zero. It was that fucking zero annual. Yeah. It was that annual. And, and, and you wrote in your review that you were worried that you're being overtly hard on Dick. And <laughs> I, I had to, I, 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 I looked at that and I just remember laughing in my office and, and I, I had to email you and be like, you know what being overtly hard and overly hard are two I know. very different things. As soon as I got your email, I was like, son of a bitch. I didn't mean to write overtly. <laughs> I love how that's a joke that we've remembered for like years at this yeah. point. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, I, re- <clears throat> I remember when you posted that giant picture on the old, not just peeling back the curtain here on the old best shot newsarama Facebook private group where all the people would claim books. Yeah. He put this big, he put this big old like George Perez style picture of like every DC character. But of course with Grayson, like he's swinging through the air with his butt out and like (laughs) Dave is tagging everyone. He thinks is like, okay, so-and-so is this character and she's this character. He fucking clicks on Grayson's butt and that's where he tags me. He's like, and there's Aaron. There's Aaron. Hard on Dick. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, yeah, no, you know, that's it's it's, it's, it's end of an era. Um, I, I wrote for Newsarama for 12 years. It's the longest relationship I've ever had. Um, <laughs> I, I've been there since uh, shortly after college. Um, but yeah, you know, the, 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 the it, this was the time. Um, you know, I, I was really fortunate. You know, I've got more projects coming out for more publishers. I have my new Kickstarter, the OZ. Um, I knew I was getting to the point where I couldn't wear both hats comfortably for much longer. Yeah, eventually and it was becoming a line that was like going to get trickier and trickier. It was, it was it was already getting tricky to sort of. I wanted to maintain my integrity as a reviewer, not you know everybody could so everybody could trust my word, but that meant I was having to avoid larger swaths, and it got to the point where um, it was going to be a challenge. And so the way it worked out was, you know, I, I spoke with senior editor Mike Duran, and there wound up being an opportunity to um, actually funnel resources into the review team which is something we've never been able to do before. <laughs> and I realized that if I could put the money that I made into the pot, it would, it would give more money to the reviewers. And uh, I realized that I was like, Oh, well, you know, that's, that's always been the goal since day one. Um, you know, when I started writing Azuzurama, there was no, nobody got paid. There were no review copies. There was one column a week. And so the fact that I was able to leave the place better than I found it, yeah, that, you know that 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 was the perfect way to, to 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 go out. So yeah, you know, I mean, certainly no bad blood. Um, you know, they they ran an interview on on my book. Um, you know, the week after I left. So um, but yeah, it's 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 weird. You know, it's I, just I, weird. <laughs> I, it's weird going through my day and not having to think about what I need to review that day. Um, <laughs> and thank goodness because I'm telling you, this Kickstarter. I love Kickstarter, but it's a totally different planet with its own laws of physics. This feels like I've been doing a con for the last eight days and yeah. I've got 21 more days to go. A Kickstarter and, campaign is basically a, a full-time job on its own. Yeah. And so um, it's, it's, it's so rewarding. I'm so grateful for it, 
but yeah, I don't have like an inch of extra bandwidth um, right. to do literally anything other than work in the book or promote the book. So, right. Um, well, speaking of which, sense. why don't you uh, let folks know what the OZ is about? Yeah. Like, what's the what's sure. this? Part? So, so the OZ, the, the the quick concept, it's what if Mad Max and the Hurt Locker took place in the Wizard of Oz? So nice. we we recontextualized uh, Dorothy killing the Wicked Witch of the West as something like a botched regime change, and so when she clicks her heels together goes back to Kansas, she's inadvertently left Oz in this horrific power vacuum that leads to years of brutal civil war. And so our story picks up a generation later with Dorothy's granddaughter and namesake. Uh, she's a disillusioned Iraq war veteran who's come back home to Kansas to kind of try to put the pieces of her life back together. Um, she's really, she's, she's come home with some trauma and, and guilt and scars uh, from her time overseas. But unfortunately, a tornado strikes uh, her, her small Kansas town, and she finds herself dropped into the war-torn land of Oz. So hmm. Dorothy's going to have to uh, really confront her own past and her grandmother's legacy, as well as navigate her grandmother's former friends if she hopes to survive the occupied zone, or as the locals call it, the OZ. So, yeah, it's a um, it's a wild book. You know, I, I consider it somewhere tonally in between uh, Mad Max: Fury Road and Star Wars: Rogue One. Um, mm-hmm. It's, uh, you know, it's my first crack at fantasy. Uh, most people who know me, they probably know my work, Spencer and Locke, um, or Going to the Chapel, uh, both mm-hmm. of which are crime-related books. And, um, yeah, this was one of the first ideas I came up with after the first Spencer and Locke. Um, oh, so you've been sitting on this for a little while. We've been, I've been working on this for three years. Um, wow. You know, I, and, and, and just like, you know, any, any sort of comic book story, um, it's never on a straight line. It's really kind of a zigzag lightning bolt. Um, you know, I, I, I had come up with this idea speaking with a publisher and, um, you know, they, they said, oh yeah, that's a really cool idea. You should flesh it out. And I really fell in love with it as the story, uh, continue, you know, as I, as I built up the story and we made it to the one yard line. Um, you know, we, we got run all the way up the flagpole mm-hmm. and it just so happened that there was another creator with a dark fantasy book that had been pitched at the same time. So I get it. Like, I don't begrudge anybody anything because if you're going to pick, you know, a a writer with more track record versus the guy who just had Spencer and Locke, I, it makes perfect sense. Uh, Right. But the editor that I spoke with, they were really, they didn't have to do this, but it really meant the world. They told me, they said, look, this didn't go your way, but I don't want you to think it's a referendum on your work or the quality of this concept. This is a really good concept. You really should continue it. Um, and that little act of kindness really made the difference for me. I, I sent that editor an email when the Kickstarter launched, just saying, you know, we wouldn't have had the kind of success we did if you hadn't given that little bit of encouragement, which you really did not have to do. So, um, so yeah, we've been working on this for a while. You know, um, uh, I believe it was late 2017, early 2018. I first met Ruben Rojas um, mm-hmm. on Twitter. Um, he was answering a call for artists, which, you know, just goes to show you sometimes those calls for artists actually do yield things. Um, and I was just <laughs> stunned that not only that he had not been picked up, but that he wasn't just like a superstar already. He's got this style that's kind of equal parts Dan Mora and Sean Murphy. Um, right. you know, he's, 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 he's brilliant in the way that he lays out his panels. You know, he's able to switch from action to emotion on a dime, but he's such a gifted designer. Um, right. the way that he fleshes out the land of Oz and, and our surrounding characters, um, it's just gorgeous. And then when you put him in a room with Whitney Kogar, 
um, the uh, colorist of the Eisner award-winning giant days, um, you can't go wrong. Um, and so working with, 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 the, with the two of them, as well as our letter, DZ Hopkins, um, you know, it, it, it's kind of like watching magic happen. And, you, you know, really, and we can talk about this a little bit more later, but there was a reason why I brought this to Kickstarter. And it was not about, oh, well, you know, can't this get published with a traditional publisher? First off, I think that stigma is long gone now. That's, that we have so, that's so long and gone now. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I would say that this was a deliberate choice. And it was because I had been looking at Kickstarter for a long time. It's a, a totally different readership and demographic than the direct market that I mm-hmm. realized I had been doing no outreach to. And, you know, have it bring me the OZ to Kickstarter it really solved one problem with another. It kind of helped me bypass the sometimes at best chaotic uh, acquisitions pipeline for traditional comics publishing. And, it, you know, it, it gives the OZ a home, but it lets me introduce ourselves to the Kickstarter community with our with our absolute best A game. Right. So it really, you know, it's the best of both worlds. Just seeing the way how people have reacted, it really feels like a, a leap of faith rewarded. Yeah, it looks like it's definitely paying off too, which is pretty yeah. cool to see. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's nobody can prepare you for a Kickstarter like this. I, I, I um, I'm really fortunate. I, I'm friends with a lot of people who've done successful Kickstarters. Uh, Charlie Stickney from White Ash uh, is a mm-hmm. friend um, down here in Los Angeles. Ryland Grant just completed his Kickstarter for the Jump. There's a real kind of um, uh, collective of LA-based comics creators who have all had success on Kickstarter. And they've all been very generous with their time and their advice, but they all said aim low because I've worked in the direct market, but I've never done anything on Kickstarter before. So they're like, you have no data. You have no metrics. Aim low. Mm-hmm. They said, uh, I think the only person who did not tell me to aim low was Ryland Grant. Um, so he was right. You know, so we started at $6,000 and I, the mindset was how do I get this funded in 30 days? And then we got funded in two hours. <laughs> <laughs> and it's kind of like going out for a sandwich and winding up on the moon. Like there's no way to prepare for that level of like insane overshot. And so that's been kind of the, the fun, if exhausting challenge of Kickstarter is figuring out, you know, we want to keep building that readership. Uh, we want to keep inviting more people to the table, but at the same time, we don't want this to have any appearance of being a cash grab. Um, and so how do we keep adding value to the book? How do we add rewards that fit within our shipping infrastructure? How do we add rewards that we can distribute digitally? Right. And so that's been an interesting um, and fun and exhausting uh, calculus um, through this process. But it's something that's so unlike the direct market that I've really been kind of learning this new planet and its laws of physics on the fly. Yeah, as as someone who's been there before too, you also have to weigh in the numbers of, because I've seen amazingly successful Kickstarters and then the creators are then broken yep. because they didn't factor in shipping costs. Yep. They were creating mm-hmm. stretch goals where all of a sudden they were shipping things that weighed like five pounds. Like, well, great. Exactly. You just ate up everything with shipping. Yeah. That, you it, know, it, like. Yeah. I've, I, I, I've seen Kickstarters do exactly what you're talking about. Um, and so, yeah, it's been thinking about, for example, um, you know, our first stretch goal was a digital comics extravaganza. So we had, uh, you know, we have a dozen. Oh, he froze. Uh, Hello. Start over. You're back. Okay. After I'm back. After extravaganza. Oh, a, a, a digital comics extravaganza where we have a dozen indie creators who have thrown in PDFs of their work, um, and that's a way to sort of you know uh, share that spotlight 
um, you know, with a bunch of people to add value to our readers. They're not just getting the 44 pages of the OZ. They're not just getting, you know, the first issue of Spencer and Locke or the first issue going to the chapel anymore. Now they're getting a dozen books on top of that. Um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's things like our, our print. We're making it the size of the book. So that way, like, we're not doing anything outside of the Gemini mailers. Huh? Um, <laughs> stickers, bookmarks, um, you know, things like our theme song, which we just unlocked this morning. Oh. Uh, you know, it, it, it's, uh, it's figuring out creative ways to add value. Um, we're also talking with our printer, for example, about uh, ways to do enhanced covers. So mm-hmm. we're talking about possibly doing other UV raised uh, stuff for, for our cover or possibly a metallic option. Oh, man, hitting um, that 90s vibe, man. Yeah, you know, people have, uh, we've had a lot of people say, you know, metallic, metallic cover, they'd love to see it. And so, but yeah, it's it's that sort of calculus. Don't you mean a tin, a tin cover? Ah, there you go. I might, you know what? It's, uh, I've heard worse ideas. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I uh, it, but yeah, it's, you know, we're adding pinups. We're, we're, we're working with a, some really cool artists right now on some pinups. Mm-hmm. Uh, Joe Mulvey from, uh, Spencer and Locke. Um, he, he just showed me some thumbnails for a really cool one. Um, so yeah, it's that sort of thing that, you know, it's a juggling act and it's not one that I anticipated, but, um, you know, it's the definition of a champagne problem to have. Um, right. and I think it just speaks to the level of connectivity and interaction that you have with readers on Kickstarter that I've never experienced before. Uh, not at a con not in a direct market release. It's, it's really granular. You can communicate with every single reader individually. And, you know, so I've made it a point, um, you know, that to, to, to send thank you notes to every single person who has backed this campaign, because I think that little bit, you know, that little gesture goes a really long way. People feel like they're being noticed. People feel like they're being seen. And that's really the appeal of Kickstarter is that they feel connected to your work because they're helping bring it to life. Right. And, you know, it's, it's amazing. It's something that I've never experienced in the direct market. Um, and, you know, it, it, it has made this experience just so worthwhile, um, you know, because at the end of the day, that's why I'm doing this. It's not about money because the money's just going to pay for the book. It's about right. getting more readers and building that, that, that wider consensus. Nice. Uh, see, I think I'm that's sure something that's commonplace uh, behind people who back comics and back games and back other creative things on Kickstarter. Mm-hmm. It's they want to be part of, like, especially for comic book people, uh, if you grew up reading comics, you want to make comics in some way, shape, or form, and you may know that there's no way that you can write a comic or draw a comic, but this is a way that they feel like they can be part of that process. So that makes sense of why people get so emotionally invested in, in Kickstarters that they pick. Yeah. Uh, you were mentioning earlier about um, how it's less less true now, but maybe still a little bit uh, lingering is the stigma of publishing via sure. Kickstarter. Um, and how, like, how much that has evolved. But, like, what's funny about there ever having been a stigma to that method of, uh, publishing is that it's actually a lot more like what it used to be, like, way in the early days of prints. Sure. Because you have to know there's a market before you can spend the money to have it made. And I don't think that there's anything wrong with establishing, um, 
establishing an audience before you go to print. I, I think I think the the what has happened, and I think post pandemic that stigma has been blown completely out of the water, is that everyone has seen publishers as some sort of stamp of approval, a barometer of taste. That if you are if, if a publisher is willing to put their name on your product, then it must be good enough to put it at a bookstore to, to 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 buy. Comics especially are very brand centric. I mean I think for a novel, you wouldn't necessarily know if this was Random House or Simon & Schuster. But comics, you know, the, the publisher is the brand in a way that's very unlike anything uh, anything else in entertainment. Uh, even in a film, you wouldn't think, oh, well, that's definitely a Warner Brothers film. That's definitely a universal film. Uh, maybe at best, you'd say that's a Fox Searchlight or a Focus Features maybe 15 years ago. Um, but yeah, I think now people are realizing that they don't need to wait for permission anymore. Um, that was really kind of the, the thing that you could call it the straw that broke the camel's back, um, you know, for the OZ was I had talked with publishers who had said they were very interested in the book. But like I said, the pipeline is chaotic in the best of times. People's right, attentions yeah. are, are, are small. Um, things happen. They, they have fires to put out. And I can, t- I, I can say there was one publisher I spoke with who it was like Groundhog Day. Like every three months, we'd have the same conversation. They'd say, we really love this book. We should talk about this. And I'm like, yes, let's. And then three months later, we would do it all over again. Yeah. Um, and well, the other thing where you're told like the industry, they're like, they're super hot right now. They're hungry for new people. And then all of a sudden the emails dry up four months later. And then you're reading how every comic company is tightening their belts. So like, all right, you've got to make right. up your minds. Right. Um, and so, you know, for me, it was, it was kind of like, oh, well, like I have two issues. I had written six standard issues of the OZ. I had two of them drawn. What am I waiting for? Um, you know, why, why wait for permission one second longer? And I think with the pandemic, particularly in comics, you know, when it, when it, when Diamond had it shut down, I think that was like a seismic event. Um, you know, people were really starting to think, okay, maybe the way we've been doing business needs to change. And you see it with uh, DC changing up their distribution, um, you know, which I think is independent of Warner Brothers kind of doing their bloodletting, um, which was, you know, that was company wide, uh, not just DC. Yeah, that was that was AT and T dropping the axe on like a third of the companies. Yeah, that, yeah. Yep. Um, you know, or you see companies like Scout or TKO or SourcePoint where they were being really nimble, um, you know, reaching out to comic shops um, who, uh, you know, it's interesting. I found some comic shops really wanted new content. They were like, we're desperate to sell stuff. And then others were like, we don't want new content. Like we're trying to just make ends meet. Don't push new content on us. Um, it's a real, you know, catch 22. And I feel for any creator who is One, in that situation. It was kind of interesting. I actually was watching what was really fascinating was watching during all this. Um, was it watching vault comics just <laughs> go, just go like gangbusters. They were calling every shop. They're like, how many do you want? We'll sell them to you at co- like, what do you want? You want our stuff? We'll send you our stuff. We will physically drive our stuff to your shop if we're in the area. Like they were relentless. It was yeah. pretty cool to watch. I feel like I feel like Vault and Boom really kind of led the charge mm-hmm. in a big way. Um, and then I think you know uh, Scout and and Source Point were kind of like you know shoring up the rear there um, because you know there were a lot of publishers who you know they kind of just closed ranks. I mean, I, I as somebody who who does like the big two and would love to do stuff with the big two, I was really disappointed in the big two's response to all of this um, because they're the industry leaders and there's no consensus to be built if they're not at the table. Which, um, you know, that stands to reason we've been having problem with 
who who should be leading sure. doesn't, and we've been finding that everyone else on the lower decks have been able to kind of go, well, fine, we'll do it ourselves. Right, right. <laughs> I mean, you can you can you can say that's that's a metaphor for the whole country at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> it, and and I think you know a lot of it, like COVID really made everybody kind of sit and think like, oh, how are we going to do business differently? You know, there's no conventions anymore. We don't know if the shops are going to close. We don't know if Diamond, you know, what Diamond's future is going to look like. And so um, I feel like between that and seeing people like Charlie Sticky, who I really consider a real pioneer for this thing, because he had been sort of mapping out the Kickstarter system uh, pretty much around the same time I was Brett Spencer in law. And he is, had such success with White Ash and has done such a great job at conducting outreach, not just for White Ash, but for Scout Comics as a whole, that he's become the co-publisher. Mm-hmm. And I feel like, you know, people are realizing, and Scout is kind of leading the way on this, that Kickstarter, you know, there are people who that can be their whole career, their whole platform. They can do really well there. Or they can have a second life in the direct market. And, you know, there's really no wrong answers to that um the real concern that i have and i've I've spoken with this with charlie at length is you know especially by virtue of coming out on the same day as scott snyder is that every direct market creator who's feeling a little shaky is gonna try their hand at a kickstarter the thing that the thing that they don't realize is first off you need to bring your a game not every kind of you know half-baked concept that you think is going to go great in Hollywood is going to work here. And yeah. secondly, it, like you said, it's a full-time job. So, you know, you got to be committed to a month of really kind of, you know, ringing the bell as hard as you can. Mm-hmm. And while yes, Kickstarter is about selling smaller numbers at higher price points, um, you're going to need some real outreach. So I, I, I hope Kickstarter doesn't turn into the direct market 2.0. I think that would be the worst possible outcome for any of this. Um, because I, I hate to say it, you know, I love the direct market, but we've screwed it up enough. Um, but you know, I, I feel like, um, I do think that Kickstarter also has a degree of self-selection. And I think if, if what is being put up is not up to snuff compared to the really vibrant indie voices that have already made such long-standing platforms there. The, the sky is a fire crew, um, white ash, um, you know, th- th- those sorts of books. Right. Um, I think they'll be in for a rude awakening. Um, and so I, 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 uh, I have faith that the ecosystem might evolve and might change. It may, it certainly will become more competitive. And that's kind of why I'm glad that I've sort of got my gotten in, now when i have because you know if the oz is done as well as it has and and we still have three weeks left that maybe we can you know use that platform and build it towards future installments of the oz and then bring that hopefully to other projects that i'm working on as well right yeah i mean that's the one of the good goals of kickstarter is that you can build that audience there that maybe will never step foot into a comic book shop yeah i mean or doesn't very often you know. Sure. Well, you know, there's so many people that don't, I know you guys were probably talking about this before I hopped on, but there's so many people that don't know what a comic shop is. They don't know where they're, they don't know they exist, let alone or, where or they are. They still have those? Like, I yeah. hear that a lot. Mm-hmm. And, and then, you know, there's, there's the people who may have taken a shot and they had either a bad experience at the comic shop or yeah. probably more likely there's just, you know, we're dealing with series that have hundreds of issues. 
And so they don't know where to start and it's very overwhelming. Yeah. And why would you bother? Whereas Kickstarter, you know, I, I keep harping on Skies of Fire. They're on issue, what, seven now? It's all still very approachable. And I think the other thing that Kickstarter does that I think the comics industry as a whole could really stand to learn from. And granted, there's, I think, fewer books on Kickstarter, but Kickstarter, they want to keep you in the ecosystem. And so they do a really good job at marketing everybody's work. Yeah. I get updates from Scott Snyder's Kickstarter and I see ads for mine. Um, and I think that's, that's amazing. If he's at $150,000, that's a $150,000 commercial for me. Uh, <laughs> you know, rising tide on Kickstarter floats all boats in the way that it, it does not in the direct market. The direct market, by virtue of retailers having to take the risk on every single issue. Um, it means, you're not competing for shelf space on Kickstarter. You're not competing for shelf space. You're not competing for dollars. You aren't competing for attention. Right. Kickstarter wants you to buy as many books as you can. Um, they want to keep you in that because they get a cut of every campaign. They want you to succeed. And so, yeah, the way that they really signal boost and have signal boosted our book in a big way, um, I'm very impressed. And I, and, and it makes me feel like, oh, this platform is really, it's worth the investment. It's worth the time. Um, in a way that, and I love the direct market and I've had a lot of success in the direct market, but it can feel sometimes like a very lonely, road um, where you're you're sort of the one pushing because publishers have other priorities whereas kickstarter it feels like everybody's a priority because that like i said a rising tide floats all boats and what's good for scott snyder is good for me um and that's not necessarily the case in the direct market right you were mentioning earlier how people view uh, a publishing house as sort of a um like a badge of legitimacy? Yes, yes. So thank you. And um, what's funny is like for me, and I'm not in the comics industry the way any of you guys are, yeah. but from my perspective, what I see it as is just another opportunity for gatekeeping to happen. You know, Absolutely. and I know, I know that Aaron's had examples of like pitching a concept and the publisher is like, no, this is not a story that people are int- going to be interested in. Next right. thing you know, like within the same year, uh, something similar rolls out and it's a huge hit. Yeah. And so, no, I, th- uh, I, th- I think you hit it. Oh, sorry. Go, go right ahead. I didn't mean to no. interrupt. No, I was like, no. yeah, that feeling. <laughs> yep. Well, I, I think you're dead on. I mean, I, I think, I think traditional publishers and I get it. Like there's an element of risk involved. They're putting their money into the book. Printing books is not cheap. If they're paying a page rate, that's certainly not cheap. Mm-hmm. So there's definitely a, 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 a certain creative conservatism. And um, then if they decide to give you a green light, but they don't necessarily believe in the project, then they're not going to market for you that well. And it's not going to get the attention mm-hmm. it needs to actually do well once it's printed. Absolutely. I mean, that's the dirty secret of the direct market is even if they do believe in it, they're probably not going to market you the way you need. Um, they just don't have the bandwidth to do it. They don't have the bandwidth or the staff or, you know, I mean, when you, when you're, when you're start, stuck in these tracks of this is how it's always been done. They're not sort of thinking outside of the box. They're, they're, they are pitching to the core constituencies rather than, you know, if they tried to do outreach, it would be, you know, insane for them. It'd be like a drop of Kool-Aid trying to convert the ocean. Uh, and 
I, you know, so I, I totally agree. I mean, every book that I've ever written has been like, I, I pitch it and it's been like a string of no's. And yet every book I've ever written, people seem to like. So I, I, I think, I think you're absolutely right that, you know, publishers, you know, they get that tunnel vision and they think, okay, like this is what we know works and this is what we're going to stick with. And they're very hesitant to do anything other than that. And I think that's to their detriment. I mean, I think, I think if the industry was a little bit more open and flexible and, 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 and bold, we could do some really interesting things. I think sometimes the industry confuses being esoteric with being, with being innovative. And um, it's, it it, it reminded me kind of what you said at the very beginning, how you were amazed that the artists you work with hadn't been picked up yet. And you hear that all the time. You'll run into editors or publishers that will see your work and say like, Oh my God, I can't believe no one's picked you up yet. I'm like, yeah, I know. Right. Uh, (laughs) You want to hire me? And then the answer you get is, "Eh." right. You know, it's like, Oh, well that's why they've not been picked up yet. Yeah, you know, it, it, it's the project management side is so time consuming, it's so grinding that the talent scouting is very difficult. At this point, sort of to gain traction, you have to be knocking on the doors all the time. And then still your work has to be so good that they, 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 they can't, they, they keep hearing about it. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and so I think that does make for some, it, it makes for some insular. Um, storytelling for the, for the direct market. Um, you know, like I can tell you, you know, going to the chapel, for example, my, 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 my last book, uh, Die Hard Meets Wedding Crashers. It's, uh, you know, uh, bank robbers try to rob a wedding and it goes very, very awry. Um, so many people I pitched that to were like, we love it and we don't know how to sell a rom-com. And the first day the book came out, we got Pat and Oswald tweeting about us. Um, you know, and, and Granted, there's no way I could have predicted that. That was like the absolute luckiest of lucky flukes. Right. But I think it speaks to, you know, the readers want new things. They don't want the same, like, like I love superheroes, but like I want superheroes told in a different way. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I love the genre mashups that, you know, Brubaker and Fraction did with uh, Iron Fist or, you know, the, the detective noir stories that Peter David did with um, X Factor. Um you know, or like the coming of age stories of uh, Blue Beetle, you know, that Colleen Hammer mm-hmm. was working on. Um, there's a lot, a lot of different angles that we can take, but I think we're, you know, we know that event stories make money. And so that's what we keep kind of leaning back towards because everyone's so afraid. They're sort of like, how do we get the next quarter's money? And I think it's at risk of saying, how do I make the next 10 quarters worth of money? How do I build the longtime reader instead of how... That, well, they're because they're always having to hit quarterly goals to appease stockholders, right? Right. On these yeah. on these bigger companies, right? You know, I'd like to see the numbers for event books for the past ten years because I don't believe that it actually makes money. I don't know. I, I mean, you know, I think the image, the 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 concept is that oh, it makes a lot of money, and the sales may be there, but if you're not doing the breakdowns of what you had to pay for it to get there, I don't think it's actually making money. I don't know. I mean, it, it, I, I, you know, I couldn't tell you. I mean, I know their numbers are comparatively strong compared to what is just a month in month out title. Um, and, but yeah, I mean, I couldn't tell you it, it's just, but I think, I think, um, you, you know, Denise really kind of hit it on the head of just, yeah, you know, create like, it's also, 
editors have a lot of things competing for their time and their attention. And so they're, they, they, they don't want to interact with you unless you give them a real good reason to. <laughs> uh, and I, I get it. Like it's a bandwidth issue and, 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 you know, they're looking for reasons to be like, I, I, no, cause they have so many people competing for their attention. However, uh-huh. I think the downside to that is, you know, because, and this speaks to sort of, you know, how the demographics of comics have traditionally looked versus how, how we're starting to see the creative teams shift is there are so many straight white guys, um, you know, in the industry. Um, and meanwhile, any creators from marginalized communities, they're suddenly expected to be like hitting the ground running from the jump in a machine that is not particularly kind to new creators. Yeah, and, you better, and, you better crack a hundred thousand copies of this, buddy. Well, and it, it, they're, they're, they are not given the time to develop because they're sort of expected to kind of, uh, carry the entire weight of an entire demographic on their shoulders. And so, and like I said, in a machinery that is increasingly set up for people to fail, um, you know, I I, uh, I think it's a real challenge to be able to put out double shipped scripts and navigate an event schedule and not know who your creative team's going to be, um, and sort of get hit with curveballs about whatever your parent company's doing with this particular character. Um, you know, that takes even the most talented of comics writers people have been doing this for years have trouble doing it i mean you're not you're not all going to be donny cates and i think i think yeah it's it's sort of by virtue of that machinery and by not having done the outreach and not having brought in people from different backgrounds um now the companies are starting to wake up a little bit but it (laughs) it's 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 still very stop and start it's still very narrow, um, you know, because they still have sort of that core constituency of all the straight white guys who have been working there for years, who they feel obligated to continue to give work. You know, nobody wants to feel like they're casting aside a creator that they've worked with for years. Um, and so it's really kind of a slow and really painfully incremental process of bringing in diverse voices and then making sure that they're given the runway to succeed versus sort of throwing them in the meat grinder and then, you know, acting surprised when they they say, I hate comics. I'm not doing this ever again. Right. <clears throat> yeah, it can, it can, it can churn out some pretty much some pretty um, disingenuous feelings for the industry that you work so hard to get into. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I, I'm sure there's a lot of people, you know, it's like, Oh, you know, um, if you're a famous novelist, you know, um, and then you, you deal with, comics which is a very different animal and it has its own share of dysfunctions and you know um you 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 suddenly are like why am i doing this like you know i thought this was going to be fun and um so nobody said comics was fun ever no you know i mean (laughs) yeah it's it's just you know and i i don't mean to like you know poo poo the direct market super hard i mean i know that at the end of the day they're trying you know like like they're just underwater, you know, and, mm-hmm. and I think it's only going to take sus- long-term sustained efforts mm-hmm. to do so. And when you have things like AT&T, like slitting the wrists, um, you know, it makes it, it makes it that much slower and that much harder to get that kind of traction, which will ultimately bring in new readership. Um, so I think it's, it's really incumbent upon the Indies 
uh, to really step up. And yeah, well, and well, sometimes you got to realize. I think some of the companies like AT and T, they just want to kind of maintain IPs now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah keep absolutely. it in, the, keep it, keep these characters in the cultural zeitgeist. Yeah, because they kind of need that. Yeah, yep. I mean, they need their tent poles. You know. Yeah. Um, in fact, the tenant's not coming out is like drawing everybody in a tizzy right now. So, <laughs> I, I, yeah, I, 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 I definitely get that. Eh, you know what? I can still wait for video for tenant. Yeah, I, I, I don't. Yeah. You know. I don't think the world starts. I love Christopher Nolan, but I'm not dying for I him. love, I, well, I mean, I like Nolan, but, uh, that's a whole other conversation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, We've got uh, a couple questions yeah. in the chat, yeah. uh, from YouTube in the chat. Let's um, do it. Hisham asks, I'm curious how deep into the Oz mythology <laughs> you're planning on going. Sure. Will you be referencing a lot of stuff from later books like Ozma, TikTok, et cetera? It's a great question, um, you know, because I, I, I really had to thread the needle a little bit. You know, my, my watchword is always accessibility. Um, you know, I, I every book that I do, I want to have something universal to it because I'm not looking to preach to the choir. I want converts. Um, part of the appeal of this book was everybody has everybody knows what the Wizard of Oz is. They have it through cultural osmosis. They know uh, Dorothy, the Tin Man, the Scarecrow, the, the Cowardly Lion. So, um, the, you know, the fun thing is I, I, I read a lot of the L. Frank Baum novels in college. I, uh, I wrote a class in adolescent literature describing the land of Oz as almost like a proto superhero universe because Baum was building on mythology and continuity over the course of 20 novels decades before Stan and Jack ever showed up on the scene. So, um, so for me, it, it really kind of the, the, the thing that I wanted to navigate was I wanted to make sure that like, you know, my mother could read this book, for example. And not have to have read, you know, a textbook. But at the same time, we are able to sort of, outside of that core group of, you know, that core quartet that everybody knows, um, we were, you know, we're able to kind of dig into some of that mythology of Oz to add extra flavor, uh, particularly in terms of the setting. Uh, so, for example, you know, in the original uh, uh, Oz novel, you, know, you, you don't really get to explore the deadly desert or the mountaintops of Ix. Uh, but I think that kind of adds a little bit more um, variety in location and, and natural obstacles. I've considered the OZ to be something like Star Wars, uh, or what's the Mad Max version of Star Wars? You know, you get that grittiness and that intensity, but you also get that sweeping scope of it all, that that sense of wonder. You know, you know what uh, Dagobah is versus Tatooine versus Hoth versus Cloud City just by looking at it. Um, you know, it's got its own unique palette and, and temperature and high concept. And the land of Oz is the same way. Uh, we, that said, you know, I, there were certain things that I couldn't resist, you know, Ozma in particular, I kind of wanted to hold off on um, because that's a character that there's a lot of narrative potential, particularly in a story like this. So mm-hmm. I was kind of like, if we ever got to tell more than the first one, that would be something to save for, for, for a later time. Um, and, 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 and similar to, to, to TikTok. Although, depending on how, you know, we're still drawing the, the rest of the series. We've written and, I've written the whole thing. Ruben has drawn the first installment. They're at, hard at work at, at part two right now. So I wouldn't say never to maybe a TikTok cameo. Um, but, uh, I will say Junk, Jack Pumpkinhead. Um, I've loved that character for a long time. Loved his design uh, in in Return to Oz, and so I uh, he plays a a, a nice sized role in this book. Um, and are, that are the be... we... 
I'm sorry. Are the wheelies in it, or are they are equally terrifying as they are in Return to Oz? You know, they may, may, maybe maybe is a cameo. Um, <laughs> yeah, it was, thing scarred me when I was like twelve. I was like, "What is this?" They're they, they are horrifying. <laughs> um, you know, it, it, so so I I never say never. Um, but yeah, it was one of those things. I wanted to make sure that it's so interesting because the bomb novels are all public domain. The Judy Garland film that the world knows is not. Right. And so you really kind of had, I had to navigate, you know, the, the Oz novel is a little darker than the movie. The movie's been mm-hmm. sanitized for sure, but like the general plot points more or less kind of coalesce together, but things like the Ruby slippers, for example, you can't use those. Those are an invention for Technicolor. Right. So silver slippers all the way. If anybody wants their no prize, it's because I didn't want to get sued. <laughs> um, you know, so. Yeah, it's really kind of sort of threading that needle between making sure that this is open for everybody, but still having, you know, those bits of Easter eggs, uh, you know, for for the diehard fans. And, and, you know, maybe leaving something on the table in case we take another trip back to Oz. Mm-hmm. Nice. Huh. Um, so a next question here. Yeah. Uh, this is This one makes me laugh because I, I think that you're – I, I, in my mind, you are the king of the elevator pitch when it comes to, you know, describing your stories in a very brief manner. But, uh, our friend Norm from Texas wants to know how agonizing was it to write the initial pitch for this Kickstarter? Oh, for the Kickstarter. Super agonizing. Um, you know, because it's, it's, I've, I've released books in the direct market. So I've, I've, I've gotten a little bit, like you always get kind of nervous when it comes out because you don't know how anybody's going to react, but. That I've sort of, I've done three times and I feel pretty good about it. Kickstarter is like a whole new animal. Um, and so you're really nervous. You're introducing yourself to a brand new community. And so I, I agonized hard over that. Um, I was gaming out, like, what's the shipping costs going to look like? Um, you know, I, I, I have my stamps.com account. I have my, my scale. I was, <laughs> you know, I was figuring all that out. Um, you know, figuring out how much should I write? in this Kickstarter campaign, uh, Pat Shand, I want to thank him, um, from destiny, New York and, and, a, and a ton of other amazing Kickstarter books. He looked at my Kickstarter the day before we launched. And he's like, you need to cut this by at least a third, oh. um, <laughs> uh, which is great. It was you know, absolutely the advice I needed. Um, so yeah, you know, it, it, you know, um, the trailer, for example, I cut that myself, um, finding, finding music that you can pay a small royalty for to use is, agony uh it, it, your your brains will fall out of their ears after enough time on uh, uh on uh, pond five uh, is the site that i use um but yeah you know it, it was one of those things it's kind of like writing in general it's just you know you're like okay like this is gonna hurt at first and then like once it's done you'll feel good about it but yeah no i i was sweating bullets the night before i i i, I almost had like a panic attack I, there's a button on the back of Kickstarter. A lot of people who've never done a Kickstarter won't know this. But when you're building a Kickstarter, there's a button. You, you have to get approval of the project. And that takes a few days because a human being needs to look at your project. Mm-hmm. And then there's a button that says prepare to launch. Sunday night, night before my Kickstarter launches, I'm like sweating bullets. I'm like, what does prepare to launch mean? Is this the <laughs> actual button to go to launch? Why would they call it this? Uh, or, or am I going to have to go through another round of approvals? Is this Kickstarter that I've been promoting for the last few weeks coming up, saying it's coming up tomorrow? Is it just going to have to wait a few days? I was just like, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what's going to happen. And my, 
my girlfriend, who is a very lovely, patient person, wind up going on her phone and looking it up. And, and she's like, do you want to know what it is? And I was like, I can't look. And she's like, it's just a button that then gives you like a, a checkbox to say like, you, are you yeah. sure you're ready for this? And then you can launch. And I was like, well, why do I need the prepare to launch button then? Why do I need the checkbox? Just give me the launch button. Um, so, you know, there's no winning. Um, but yeah, you know, it, it, definitely I was, I, I try to be as deliberate about it as I can. It's a very different animal than uh, most writing that I do. Um, but thankfully the Kickstarter um, infrastructure is very intuitive. Um, it's very easy to use. Yeah. Um, I, I, I certainly like it a lot more than WordPress, for example. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I definitely spent probably two weeks, two to three weeks working on it um, and sort of gaming out what kind of tiers I was going to offer at what prices, trying to make sure that I, I had everything at, at, a, at a level that anybody at any budget could participate in this book. Um, but yeah, I mean, and it's still, you know, there's still things that I'm kind of learning, you know, for example, um, you know, we have some very limited edition Spencer and Locke plushies uh, on the Kickstarter. Um, and I intentionally set that at a high price because it's sort of, it's a piece of history and whether or not we sell all of, of those I, you know, there's a part of me that doesn't want to give them up. So, you know, I, I, uh, it's definitely a learning curve. Um, but yes, I definitely, uh, agonized quite a bit over the writing of that. So thank you for asking. <laughs> yeah. Uh, let's see. I think there was a few more questions. I've been yeah. Hit me. There was a second part to that Norm, Norm's question, which was, uh, what, what was your music of choice while creating the book? Oh, while creating the book. Boy, you know, somebody asked me this the other day. I, I wish I had a better answer than I don't remember. Because I, I, I wrote this book a while back. Um, the book was finished. The scripts were finished before the pandemic. So that's like how long I've been working on this. And the first script I wrote, I think, yeah, it was sometime in 2017. So... um Boy, I couldn't tell you. I do feel like there was a song from Logan, uh, Way Down We Go. I think I listened to that a lot. Because I actually was developing the OZ concurrently with Spencer and Locke 2, which had our villain, our, our villainous analog of Beetle Bailey. So I feel I felt like well, as I was writing those books, it was kind of like two sides of the same coin. Right. Um, and so I think that was a pretty formative song. But boy... For me, I, I tend to, instead of bouncing around from song to song, I find one song that sort of gets me in that right energy and that right mood and that right mindset. And I just put it on repeat until the images start to hit me a bit. And then when that song stops working, then I try to find another one. And I basically just stick with songs until I kind of get myself across the finish line. Nice. Sorry, Norm. I wish I had a better answer for you. <laughs> Um, I always like to ask this on uh, Kickstarter creators because I was I was asked this myself. Yeah. So you you personally, out of all of the various reward levels, which one do you think is worth the most bang for their buck? If like if you're like, all right, if you could only pick one level, if you could this only is the one I pick. This is the level, level I'd pick personally. Well, you know, there's a, there's the ones that I would pick, and let me let me actually open up the Kickstarter so I can get the actual name for it. Um. But, you know, I think, honestly, my my favorite is just kind of, you know, where you get all of my stuff. Um, and so there's, uh, let's see what we called it. Uh, not not the, uh, well, there's the Skype session with me. You're going to get a lot of bang for your buck there. 
Um, there is, come on, where are you? Uh, all covers and trades. Uh, all covers and trades for 115. Um, you get not only all four covers of the OZ, but you also get all three trades that I've worked on in the past. Plus you're getting things like, um, you're getting a PDF of my script. Mm-hmm. Uh, almost every single tier gets that. You're getting digital files of Ruben's inks, uh, his raw inks and Whitney Kogar's untouched colors. Um, you're going to get uh, uh, PDFs of the first issues of my books as well. But yeah, I mean that, you know, that's the real meat and potatoes uh, 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 one that you've got. But I also think, yeah, you know, talking with me on Skype, I think we have a couple of those left. Ruben Rojas, I think might have uh, one or two commissions left. Um, nice. He's so talented that a- anybody should be asking for his work. <clears throat> but um, yeah, you know, I, I think, I think um, getting everything I've got, uh, I think, you know, we, we make that, I think, fairly affordable. And, um, you know, then you get to, then you get to know me with everything I've written. Nice. Okay, cool. I'm impressed that there are several, um, Kickstarter levels that the rewards are no longer available because they hit the, the maximum number of backers for each of them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, and I couldn't be more excited about that. I couldn't be, you know, more grateful. Um, because yeah, it's, 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 we're trying to just add something to our, to our, 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 our readership. Um, for example, getting drawn in the book, all our cameos are gone. Um, <laughs> it's challenging for a book like the OZ where there's very few human characters mm-hmm. to fit human beings. Um, so that's, that's actually something that Ruben Rojas is, is currently working on. Um, but, uh, yeah, you know, it's just been, um, it's been nice. You know, I, I, I think it's been a nice combination of people that I know, but also just complete strangers, which is, 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 I was expecting these numbers to be like half my family, you know, and I don't have this many members of my family. Um, and, uh, you know, I think it's something I checked the other day and I think it was like 20% people I knew, but that mm-hmm. was, that was like 150 people ago. Right. When people go. So I think it might be increasingly less, which is, uh, that's good. I'm glad. I'm glad. Cause my, my, my girlfriend doesn't have enough like aunts and uncles to sustain my comic crew. <laughs> <laughs> but they can get you by for a little while. They can maybe, yeah, give me by for a little while. That's that's all right. we need. Just a little bit of attraction. Got another question here from yeah. the listeners. Um, listener Ace says that uh, they are an artist and not a writer uh, who is now writing a script. So they are asking for any of your brief words of wisdom. Yeah. Well, first off, uh, congratulations, Ace. Um, good for you for for taking that leap. Um, the fact that you're an artist, uh, trying to work on scripts, you've already got the hard part down. So my advice for learning how to work on scripts, first off, start small. Um, I wrote a short script a day for 90 days. Um, that's how I kind of got my start. They were terrible scripts, by the way, like nothing (laughs) that will ever be for public consumption. Um, but it kind of let me learn the structure a little bit, you know, uh, sort of the introduction to the character, the world, the concept, what have you kind of, you know, an inciting event, which usually kind of gets tucked into that, you know, it's sort of a, a, a mise en scene kind of thing. Um, then, you know, what's the kind of midpoint twist that you don't know, you know, the whole, the whole game has changed. The whole direction has changed. And then the cliffhanger, are they going to make it? Uh, if they do make it, you know, it's a comedy or a drama. If they don't make it, it's a tragedy. And just do that. Literally six pages. Uh, it does not matter how good the concept is. That I've done terrible concepts. I, to show when I was doing this, this was the summer that Charlie Sheen had his breakdown. 
So like one of my scripts I distinctly remember was like rock stars from Mars. And it was like some terrible, this is spinal tap. Like, <laughs> um, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't even have to be super original. Like, you know, like I said, it, all you have to do is put the reps in. Um, yeah. and in fact, I would wholeheartedly recommend that as you put in these reps, do not put pressure on yourself to print them, to publish them. It's just, just, it's, 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 it's getting prison repped, you know, <laughs> like, like you're, you're, you're in this small little <laughs> box and you're kind of building up those muscle groups. Um, I'd recommend that. Um, the other thing I'd recommend is if there are any comics that you like, um, take those, those, those comics and reverse engineer the scripts. Um, Scott Snyder told me, I'm sure he doesn't do this anymore, but he used to reverse engineer Batman year one every year, once a year. And that way you kind of get to learn, you know, what's the pacing of it all? How many panels do I, do I think I can fit on a page? How many word balloons, you know, are there going to be on this page for it to fit? As an artist, you probably have a decent sense of how, how, how much you can draw, but it's always good to kind of learn pacing and, for, and structure from somebody else. Right. Um, so I think whatever books that really speak <clears throat> out to you. And then once you sort of put in a bunch of reps that way, then you can start to kind of branch out a little. You can say, okay, you can do some anthology stories if you want something really short and published. I found that doing just a short mini series was particularly the most bang for my buck. Um, you know, I wrote it. I just, I wrote a first issue. Did I like the first issue? If the answer is yes, then you can write an outline for the rest of it. If you don't, then throw it in the trash or let it sit in the, in the, in the drawer and think of something else. Um, you know, ultimately this is the, just like drawing, you know, I, I don't think that you draw in full rendering at the jump you're doing, your, your blue lines and then you're doing sort of this, the, the sketchy lines and then you're doing sort of your harder inks and then you're doing your rendering and your shading and your coloring. It's all scaffolding. The next step is scaffolding to the next step. And it's the same way in writing. Um, something mm-hmm. else that I found is really helpful is breaking it down in as many steps as you can. So, um, you know, I, I do an outline. It's just, you know, anything goes, you just sort of figure out how, what can I tell? what am I going to tell for this story? Um, and then I break it down page to page. Um, I do, I call it a beat sheet, but it's just like, this is the action that I can fit on this page. And I've got 20 pages. Or I've got 22 pages. Can I fit all the action I want to in those 22 pages? If not, something's got to get cut. Um, I think that really takes a lot of the pressure off of me. And that means that when I start getting into the scripting stage, um, I can say, oh, you know, like I, I know what action is going to happen here. And so I can just have fun doing the dialogue or the, or the narration. The other thing I would say, and you'll, you'll learn this more with your, if you reverse engineer a script, you're going to figure out real quick what the max you can fit on the pages. Um, for me, I consider kind of my hard and fast rule, unless I'm doing a nine panel grid, you know, four to six panels a page, try to keep it on the lower side, have a couple splash pages ready just to, you know, give, give yourself or somebody else a break. Um, I like, that I, I don't, I try not to have more than 17 word balloons per page. Um, that's sort of my hard and fast, you know, number. And I try not to have more than 22 words per balloon. Although sometimes when I have big words, that kind of throws that metric out the window. Yeah. Um, that's sort of my personal preference. You may have something else. Um, mm-hmm. You may say, oh, I just, you know, I want Jeff Loeb, for example. You know, he's writing most of his books at three panel pages. Um, they're sort of big widescreen story time. Um, you have somebody 
like um when brendan fletcher and babs tar were working on batgirl together they were having like seven and eight panel pages james tynan does that a lot um you know with his batman books so um you'll figure out kind of the pacing that works for you um and that won't kill you as an artist or some other unlucky artist like i i remember when i worked on lazarus uh greg would actually have me count on every page he's like if you go over 12 balloons you better have a really good reason for doing yeah. it like yeah. per page and i remember going back to script like okay i'm good there you know <laughs> yeah i mean i mean i was gonna say greg greg especially is the type um just you know having having read his work but yeah he he like he a little goes a long way yeah um and so yeah i'm a little wordy <laughs> but that's what i'm saying is that like there as a different creator you will have a different metric that you consider okay and um greg is much smarter than me so really i should be probably stripping it down to 12 myself i still do it that's what I'm doing now. I will still count bubbles. on it. I will still count on every single page. Like, okay, do yep. I, how, how late can I get in on here and how quickly can I leave? Kind of <laughs> Absolutely. Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah. that's, that's, that's man it. Get yeah. in, uh, get in, get in late, get out early. Only Alan Moore can get away with like paragraphs and paragraphs. Yeah. And every artist wants to kill him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That was a nice and thorough answer. Yeah, I yeah, think about actually, this stuff a lot. <laughs> actually, kind of, we got to actually wrap it up here. That's kind of a good spot to to wrap the show up tonight. Yeah, agreed. Um, uh, the, so the the Kickstarter is you just go to kick if you just type in uh, the OZ on Kickstarter, it's going to come right up. Yeah, uh, but we'll also make sure we link it everywhere. There are two results if you go uh, OZ, but um, one of them is obviously the comic, and the other one is some other business. Well, uh, I, I can, if you go to bit.ly slash the OZ comic. That'll take you straight to our Kickstarter page. Oh, nice. Um, and yeah, and you can also follow the book on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at the OZ Comic. You can follow me on uh, Twitter and Instagram, Pepos D, or David Pepos Comics on Facebook. You can subscribe to my newsletter, Pep Talks, uh, which is at bit.ly slash pep news. And uh, yeah, otherwise, you know, thank you guys for having me. Thank you for, to all your listeners for your amazing questions. Um, you know, every backer matters and every dollar counts on Kickstarter. I'm doing this to build the widest possible readership. Uh, you know, right now we're just behind 800 backers and, um, you know, I want to, I want to cross that, that milestone. And, um, so, you know, I, I want to make sure you guys know we're adding a lot of bang for your buck. We're not telling this story for shock value for the shock, shock value sake. That's not how I do things. I right. think we've justified the story narratively with the original bomb mythos and mm-hmm. we've gotten characters that we, we treat with compassion and respect and empathy because ultimately I believe that's how we treat our readers. Um, so uh, if you've liked any of my books like Spencer and Locke, I think you're going to love the OZ uh, because yeah, working with this team, this is some of the best work that I've ever had the privilege of working on. Yeah. It's really solid work. So I'm, I'm jazzed to check out, check out more of it. Uh, cool. I will mention that uh, in the time that we've been recording the show today, I think uh, you gained an additional, uh, Hundred and fifty to two hundred dollars. Awesome! <laughs> That's what I like to hear. Thank you to our backers. Um, uh, you know, I promise you, we're 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 bringing our A game to this. We're not going to let you down. Nice. Thanks. Well, David, man, it's great to have you on again. Absolutely. Thank you guys so much for having me, and and thank you again for these awesome questions. Yeah, and if we ever have shows again, we'll be crashing in each other's apartments and houses. Yes, please. <laughs> Looking forward to it. Fried egg. Yeah. I'm in love. Uh, love that place. Oof. I might have a bottle of uh, their magic egg dust to send down to you. Did you say magic egg dust? What they put on their sandwiches. You can buy it. 
Which spoilers? It's apparently just pepper and, and cayenne pepper, but I don't know. <laughs> I don't care. I'll take it. That sounds, <laughs> that sounds magic. Awesome. It is magical. Well, thank you so much, guys, uh, and have a great night. Yeah, thank you too. Yeah, thanks, David. Go get some sleep. Yeah, we'll do. All right, man. Bye. Cats over cool. here knocking my shit over. I know. Claymore. One of these days, she's gonna like boot me out of the Zoom app. Or we're just gonna have nothing but cat butt while you're like move. I try to keep her butt out of the camera. Cats do what they do. I know. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is true. Yeah, it's cool to have David on again. We probably should be wrapping up the show this week. Uh, next week is it building character again? Yes, it is. Yes, we are building character next week. Then after that, we are taking a week off. Indeed, we are. We're doing a retreat. Hold on. Hold on. Let me make sure I'm looking at that correctly. Um, I will tease a little bit. We may have, even though we're taking a week off, we may have a little something special to to say. So we will will definitely let folks know beforehand. Yeah. Yeah, A little special something, something. They might get little treats. Special mm-hmm. treats. Special treats for our geek friends. Boop, boop. I don't know well, why I did that. Uh, it just came out of me. <laughs> boop, boop. Just, just go, with it. go with it. Whoa. <laughs> Sorry, my cat is just fucking everything up over here. It's all right. That's what they do. That is what cats and do. Now she sounds mad. Well, with that, oh, uh, dog. I'm Aaron Duran. I'm Peter Rita. And I'm Cable Hashitani. Separate these two. Oh, uh, don't forget to donate to the Black Resilience Fund. And as always, Ted Wheeler, you need to resign. Asshole. Red and Teresa Redford. Sure, go for it. <laughs> Let's all have an end line now. <laughs> Bye, everybody. Bye. Oh, and I look stoned. We all look stoned in the initial capture. Fantastic. Super. I mean, I could I could take some stuff and we could just, that way it's method. <laughs> Go for it. Uh, if I got stoned before the show, it would be extremely counterproductive. Do you just get all like, Whoa. Uh Yeah, I'm like easily confused and um, I start like, my mind starts to wander. So you, you turn into me? I like I get philosophical but not about anything worth being philosophical about. Yeah, so you turn into me. <laughs> and you, you start are... getting you start getting really hungry and Oh yeah. You're like oh, hey, man, I, I, eat could, everything. I could go for some cheese right now. That sounds delicious. <laughs> mm-hmm. Speaking mm-hmm. of cheese, did you know that you think the moon was made of cheese? That's what I mean. <laughs>